Uh, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, tonight we're resuming in-person Bible study uh, here at Antioch Baptist. So uh, thanks for tuning in online. and uh, Thanks to everyone who's been working so hard. We got uh, Rich and Blaine and Steve have been working hard all day trying to get our live feed set up uh, through the camera. So uh, they're working hard at it and appreciate their hard work. Let's open up tonight and uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the chance to uh, just to look back and, and look back into the uh, into your inspired holy truth and learn about uh, how we can live our lives. And as we continue to study, we just pray you'll continue to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, picking up tonight, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start at verse uh, 23. Hopefully, we'll finish up uh, the whole chapter. Hopefully, we'll get through it. Now, we know that we're in the last week of Jesus' life. This is his last week on earth, and we have seen where he's been teaching and talking about the uh, parables of the kingdom, and we've seen where uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, at the beginning of, in, actually in the middle of chapter 22, challenged him, and these were two groups that were actually uh, opposites, they were actually opponents, but when it came to dethroning Jesus, uh, everybody kind of pulls together. So you're going to see the, the chief priests from the temple, the Pharisees, the Herodians, uh, and now the Sadducees are going to jump in on them here. All these groups were different religious groups that were in competition with one another. Uh, they were trying, they were vying for power, they were trying to outdo each other, uh, and they didn't agree on very much at all, but one thing they they all pulled together to try to discredit Christ. And remember, they had to, because at the beginning of chapter uh, 21, you see the triumphant entry. So Christ comes in, into Jerusalem, marches in, and the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They call in the son of David. They basically crown him as the Messiah, acknowledge him as the Messiah. And then remember, Jesus doesn't go, he doesn't go uh, to attack Rome at that point. He goes into the temple, and he overturns the tables, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And so uh, he has basically turned the religious world on its head, and now they're all scrambling, thinking, okay, we've got to find a way to discredit him and discredit him soon, or else our power is going to be gone. And we talked about how that's the danger. That's the danger of having more loyalty to your religious affiliation than you do to Christ himself. And I like what uh, Madison said tonight at the dinner table. Uh, she, she led family devotions tonight. And that's what she said. She said, we have to remember and keep the emphasis of, uh, of, in Christianity. Has to, the emphasis has to stay on relationship. It can't, it, the emphasis can't shift to religion because when, it, when, you, when you shift it to religion, it's not that the religion in itself is wrong. It's that a lot of times uh, when, when you ritualize something, you kill relationship. Rituals always kill relationships. Right, so the married people in the room and the married people watching at home will attest to that, right? I mean, once once something becomes ritualistic, it takes away from the relationship, right? I mean, it, when Laura and I were dating, uh, we didn't have to, nobody had to schedule a date night, right? Nobody had to, I mean, you didn't have to plan that. That was happening. The minute I was free, I was going to go see her. And the minute she, and sometimes... You know, if I wanted to see her more than I wanted to do the things I was supposed to, I'd go see her anyway, right? So I mean, that, there was that that strong bond, that strong relationship. But once once you're married for a while, you know, then you know the the emotion of it eh, it can wane a little bit, right? What came naturally at one time 
then starts to require some effort, right? I mean, it didn't take her long for uh, the luster of, of being in relationship with Dave Bowie. It didn't take long for that luster to wear off, right? It's one thing, you know, at the beginning, but then when, you know, you're picking up, you know, dirty laundry and cleaning up and it's just, you know, that's what happens. You have to continue to work at that. You have to really put the emphasis on that relationship. But once things begin ritualized, okay, we're going to have date night every Friday just because that's that's the scheduled night. We sit across the table. We just stare at each other. Okay, so you have to you have to put effort into the relationship aspect. Ritualistic things kill relationship. And when and when you're when you're in something, the longer you're in something, the easier it is to forget why you're doing what you're doing. Isn't that true? You know, when you start off with a cause. All right, and I can talk about Tommy building his pool, right? I mean, when you start oh, no, off, please right? do not talk about that. <laughs> That's a Don't sore subject. But when you start off, with, <laughs> when, when your wife is pitching you the idea of this pool, it's all oh, the grandkids. Are good. We're going to have so much fun. It's going to be so great. Oh, yeah. But then once you're two weeks into it and you've been digging and digging and digging, you, you're, really, you're over it real fast, right? You just want to do it and get it done. And that's what happens. The same thing happens in... In, in religion, when we forget why we do what we do. And the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the chief priests, uh, the, the, the Jewish religion in, in Jesus' day became a whole lot more about securing their own personal power and position. And the emphasis in reaching people was lost. And that was illustrated in the temple. And Jesus exposed that. And he exposed that publicly. And by doing that, he sets all these other groups... They're out to get him. They're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to trip him up. We saw that uh, in the question about the taxes last week with, with is, it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Every Jewish radical hated the Romans. And so they thought that they would catch Jesus in this act. If they get Jesus in support of, 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 of Caesar, in support of paying taxes, okay, the, the Jewish people are going to turn against him. And also notice who... who who put their heads together on this, the Herodians, they were the, the political party supporting Herod. They're, they're getting dividends by the taxes paid to Caesar. That's how they get paid. So you have two opposing people trying to catch him because they said, all right, the Jews will hate him if he says uh, you have to pay taxes. And the, the Romans will hate him if he says, no, don't pay that tax. Be, be true to the temple. Be a true, be, be a true Jew. Be a true son of Abraham, which was the, the radical local movement at the time. And, and don't pay anything to Rome. They said, okay, well, the Romans will catch him in that. And Jesus turned them right up, and he said, whose face is on the coin? Because at that time, there was two different kinds of currency used. There was one type that was used in the temple, and there was one type that was used outside the temple. And so Jesus says, look, Caesar's face is on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God. And he shut them both down. So now that the Herodians and the Pharisees are shut down, we're going to see in verse 23... The Sadducees are going to take a shot at it. Now, this group called the Sadducees, uh, they did not, they were, um, and I, I mean, I, I kind of, I cringe using this type of terminology, but there's just no other better way to illustrate it. They were the liberal side of the Jewish religion of their day. So they were very loose in certain aspects, uh, and they only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were actually inspired by God. So they didn't count the Psalms, they didn't count the prophets, they didn't count the historical books. The Sadducees only looked at the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, as being inspired. And the other thing 
they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed that after death, you, you were done. Your life was over and you ceased to exist. So they didn't have the hope of the res resurrection. And that's like my dad used to say, that's why they were so sad, you see. And that's how they got their name, because they were, you know, I, I thought that, was, that joke was going to flop. I'm so glad it didn't. But anyway, so the Sadducees, are they're going to take their shot now. They say, okay, look, the Pharisees failed. The Herodians failed. If we can, if we can stump Jesus, we will take the. We will finally get the prominent position in this power struggle. And so the whole, the, the saddest thing, one of the saddest things about the last week of Jesus is that it truly shows. First of all, it shows how fickle people are, right? Because on Sunday, everyone's saying Hosanna, 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 and then on Friday, those same people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and they were swayed by these same leaders that are trying to stump Jesus. So it was very quickly, the saddest part is, as soon as people realized that Jesus was not going to be the type of ruler that they wanted, they turned against him. They didn't want a kingdom that was not of this world. They wanted a kingdom that was going to give them the freedom that they wanted right then and there. And so we really have to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap. I said it a couple weeks ago, on the live stream, there's often room in our lives for the Jesus that we want, but there's rarely room for the Jesus that is. And if you're going to accept Jesus Christ for who he is as Lord and Savior, you have to accept him totally for who he is and who he said he was. And the people weren't ready for it. So let's read this little passage about the Sadducees and what they're going to try to do to trip up Christ. Uh, starting in uh, chapter 22, verse 23, it says, The same day... Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now they're quoting uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And this is the, uh, the literate marriage, which didn't have anything to do with the, with the tribe of Levi, all it had to do was it ensured that a man's line would carry on even after he died. So let's say Drew, uh, Mock, and I are brothers. I'm the older brother. You know, well, actually, are you older than me? No, okay. I'm the older brother. He's the younger brother. All right, and I'm married, and I die. It was his responsibility, legal responsibility, to take my wife and to have at least one male child to ensure that my name and my lineage continue. So that was the law of Moses. That's what they're referring back to. And they're going to try to use that law to trip him up. Now, verse 25. Now, there was seven brothers among us. The first got married and died, having no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second and also to the third and so to all seven. Then last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they had all married her. And Jesus answered them, You are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, what's happening? you got the Sadducees who don't believe in the spirit world. They don't accept anything except the law of Moses. And so 
they, they, they create this scenario where they think Jesus isn't going to be able to answer this question. If you don't learn anything else by this last week of Jesus' life, you should learn there's no way to trick Jesus. You can't, you're not going to outsmart him. There's no way. They create this, this uh, really, it's kind of an impossible scenario, right? I mean, it's really unlikely that seven guys are going to all die in perfect succession, and this woman is going to have to marry each one after the other one dies, right? I mean, we would all agree, first of all, this is one of those hypothetical scenarios. Anybody know, uh, you know someone that they don't really want to talk about the actual truth of a matter, they just like to speculate in the hypothetical. They like to create these hypothetical arguments, don't they? They like, and so we got to remember what, what Paul told Titus. Man, he said, avoid useless debates, avoid those childish disputes. And man, if, if we if we could hear anything right now, and especially those watching online, all of us need to know, man, we, we need to just stay out of debate for the sake of debate. It doesn't build anybody up. It doesn't edify. It rarely solves anything, and it rarely makes any kind of progress, right? It gets you in an uproar. It gets you upset. It gets somebody else upset. But you rarely change anybody's point of view, right? And so remember their purpose. Now, they're, first of all, they're taking, they're, they're, they're totally missing. The, the thing that struck me about this whole story, what they're trying to do, is they totally missed the point of the law to begin with, right? I mean, what's the purpose of this law? That, that they're trying that they're throwing up in Jesus's face and kind of bringing that scenario what's the point what's the heart behind that law to take care of the family right to, to, to carry on to uh, to preserve a man's name should he die without a male heir and you know family inheritance back in the nation of Israel was a major thing it was a huge thing it was important for every home to have an heir and it was considered a disgrace if a man, uh, did not have a family heir. So for the brother to marry uh, his brother's widow, not only is it preserving the family name, but it's making sure she has somebody to care for her, right? Because women couldn't own property. They didn't have the rights. They didn't have the same standing in society as men did at that time. And we know that that was not right. That's the way it was in Jesus' day, and it's the way that it was in ancient Israel. So it's, a, it's an actually, it's an act of, selfless, of selflessness, Right? It's an act of, I'm putting my family before myself. Uh, it's kind of sad, right, that the woman didn't have a say in the matter. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of messed up, but we won't, we won't dwell on that too long. Now, I'm going to read this from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. It says, if brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall, shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of, of a husband's brother to her, and it will be that the firstborn son she bears will succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name would not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, hold on, ran out of, ran out of text. Answer and say, so it, so it shall be done to the man 
who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has had his sandal removed. So this is kind of a big deal in ancient Israel, right? And the purpose was, again, to carry on the name and to carry on the legacy of, of the family. And if the brother didn't do it, it was a disgrace that he didn't do it. So we're, 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 dealing, with, we're dealing with a law in the Old Testament that is centered around, you know, maintaining family integrity, okay? So now the Sadducees are ripping this up really out of context and just trying to use it for the purpose of, of, of tricking Jesus. But what is Jesus? I love Jesus' response to them, right? He tells them, you're deceived. Now, we talked about deception a lot on Sunday, right? Remember what deception is. Anybody got a good definition or idea of deception? What is deception? What was it? Presenting something that you're not. Yeah, yeah, we gave that example Sunday about putting the bear trap, acting like you're not trapped. Right, but if you're deceived, you're living in a lie and you don't know it. Right? If you're deceived, you're you think you are 100% right and you're 100% wrong. And so Jesus tells the Sadducees that they are deceived. What What do you think are some reasons that he calls them deceived? Why are they deceived? Think about what they believed and what they didn't believe. Why are the Sadducees deceived? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. And there definitely is a bodily resurrection. So they're, de they're, they're, they're deceived, number one, because they had the wrong belief, right? The other reason I think they're deceived is... They actually thought this plan was going to work. Who came up with this scenario, right? Can you imagine them sitting back in the... I mean, if I'm going to come at Jesus, I'm going to try to think of something better than this. They thought they had a foolproof way to trap him in, 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 the, in this debate, right? And I think that any time you think you can get one over on God, you're deceived. Any time you think, Micah... Anytime you think that you can get away with something and that God's not going to see it and that you, there aren't going to be consequences, wouldn't you say you're deceived in that instance? Why? Because you, you know it's wrong and you know that God's wrong. You know it's wrong and you know God's going to find out. Right? God sees everything. So anytime, but we do this in our everyday lives, don't we? When, whenever we compromise, whenever we try to take a shortcut, we think, well, you know, we find a way in the instant, in the moment, to justify it and, and to convince ourselves that it will be okay, but we know in the long run it's not going to be okay. Right? You know, and I don't know about you, but it, I've had times in my life where I've taken a shortcut and I thought, well, it'll just have to do, and then that just nags at me all day. I'm like, you know what, i got to go back and i got to fix that. You ever had that happen to you? That's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you, right? That's your maybe your moral upbringing. Maybe you were taught that well, it's not okay to cut corners. You got to do it right, do the job right the first time. And so these guys are deceived, and we got to be careful that that we don't get deceived. Now look at verse twenty nine. Why are they deceived? I think that's a great point. I think he's pointing it out that they're they're deceived because they're present they're being hypocritical and even presenting this, right? Because they didn't believe in a resurrection. So the fact that they're coming at and laying out this hypothetical scenario that doesn't line up with their belief, 
I mean, Jesus calls them out from the very beginning. It's a great point, Sharon. He's calling them out from the very beginning that you think it's okay to, to claim you believe something that you don't really believe if it accomplishes the end goal, which is to get rid of me. And so it's funny how there's, you know, it's, it's funny. You really know where someone's true conviction lies in that they won't waver on it. If you really truly believe something to be true, no matter what happens, no matter what scenario takes place, no matter what you might benefit by bending your belief, you will not give in, right? That's a true conviction. So these guys, they don't even really know what they what they believe, do they? They're not, they're not that secure and confident in their teaching. And I, I sense a little bit of sarcasm here. Do you pick up on that when we read? I mean, they're kind of, it's kind of arrogant. I think that deception... Uh, nine times out of ten, it, it's the result of arrogance, isn't it? Remember when we talked about uh, Satan on Sunday? How he said, I will, I will, I will. He was deceived, wasn't it? He actually thought that enough support, Satan believed he was powerful enough to overthrow Christ, overthrow God. That's he. And what led to his deception? It was his own pride. It's the same thing that leads to ours. Oh, it, it won't affect me. Right? We think we're going to be the one exception to the rule, right? Oh, it'll affect everybody else but not me. I'll get away with it. It, it, won't, it won't really harm or hurt anybody. It's just me. It's, it's my life. I deserve it. And we talked about all that. That deception is always the result of arrogance and pride. And Jesus says right here, they were deceived for two reasons in verse 29. First one is they didn't know the scriptures. Now you think about that. These guys thought they were experts. They, they thought they were so well-versed in it, they could pick and choose which parts of the Old Testament were inspired and which parts weren't, right? And it's ironic, ironically enough, uh, they're claiming, you know, the Sadducees claiming that only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are inspired. But when you go to the end of the chapter, Jesus says in verse uh, 43 that King David wrote Psalm 110 inspired by the Spirit in verse 43. So Jesus tells us right there. The entire Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, that's an important verse for you to, anytime you know you have that question, why, why should we trust the Bible? Why should we, well, Jesus himself said, David, King David is writing there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, and, and, and I, there's no, it's not an accident that the proof text he uses to debunk their questions about the Messiah is a proof text that the Sadducees wouldn't have accepted. Really and truly, when it comes to the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible, it doesn't matter what you think is inspired. God said it, and that settles it. And so we've got to be careful today, people that are trying to... But anyway, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. They didn't know the Scripture. If you don't know the Scripture, you're setting yourself up to be trapped in a lie. If you don't know it, you're setting yourself up for deception. And he says they also didn't know the power of God. Denying the resurrection is denying the power of God. It's saying that God is limited... In his power. How can you say the same God that created something out of nothing is unable to resurrect? Right? So they're very limited. And I'm not sure why. I don't know the reasons behind their lack of belief, right? And and I don't know, I don't know why they had that belief, but what we do know is Jesus makes it very clear they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't understand the power of God. Now he says something in verse 30 that makes that makes Laura really sad. All right, this, this verse 30 keeps Laura up at night crying because Jesus says in the resurrection, 
they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. Now that makes Laura sad because it means that when we get to heaven, right, it does. It makes me sad too, honey. I, I'm gonna, but see, there's something. What you have to understand, right? What did Paul say in Ephesians chapter five? He talks about the marriage relationship is God's living illustration of a larger relationship. Right? The marriage relationship was a gift. If you're married, you say amen. It's a gift from God, right, to illustrate the love that Jesus has for the church and the respect and the following of uh, uh, the respect of the authority that the church has for Christ. That's the purpose. And Paul says this is a mystery. It was, it, was, it was a revelation. It was a new revelation even when Paul was writing it. Why did God, and I don't care what the Supreme Court says, right? They can change Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act all they want, right? My Bible says that God created the male and female. Come on, somebody. All right, so the Supreme Court has got a balanced need to the Bible in my book. And so there's no legislation of man that can rewrite God's design. And that's a whole nother rabbit trail, but that really ticked me off this week, right? I mean, that's just everywhere you look. It is, isn't it ironic that we just talked about that on Sunday, how Satan is after every institution of God? And then you see it in the news two days later. The, the purpose of marriage, why did God create them male and female? God is taking both created equally in his image, both co-heirs in the grace of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. But God made men and women different. And praise God he did, right? Why? Because they each display the glory of God in a different way. Now, when we're resurrected, the resurrected body, when we get into the eternal state, that we will no longer need to procreate. That will no longer be needed, right? The illustration of Christ in the church will no longer be needed because we'll be united with him. So we will now, the reproductive system of the human body won't be included in the glorified body. We won't need it. It doesn't mean that you lose your, your, your physical feature distinctions. It just means that in the resurrection, there's no longer the need for marriage. Maybe that's why heaven will be perfect. I don't know. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Of course, that's a joke. But, so this scenario that they're putting forth, Jesus is telling them, you don't realize how ignorant you are by suggesting what you're suggesting. You obviously have no clue what the scriptures say. You have no clue about the power of God. The resurrected body, we will no longer die. So there will no longer be the need to replace humans with more humans. There's no more death. And every human that has ever been created will be uh, in that glorified state if they're a believer, and if not, then they'll be in the eternally damned state in hell. But immortality makes procreation unnecessary. And God's creative power transforms the nature of existence so that the normal conditions of life will no longer be in effect. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We will all be changed. We'll all be changed. And we will all be in perfect harmony with God, and we'll also be in perfect harmony with one another. The entire eternal state is going to focus around our relationship, our complete and fulfilled relationship with God. We will be his people and he will be our God. So the socioeconomic differences won't exist in heaven. Right? The, the marriage relationship will not be the same in heaven. 
the familial relationship will not be the same in heaven. Why? Because you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We'll all be one family united with God. So the name, your last name, that's what, you ever, you, do you remember reading in the book of Revelation when Jesus is talking to the seven churches and he says that he's going to give you a name that only you and he know? You're, you won't be, thank God, in some circles it's going to be a great blessing not to be identified as a boat anymore. I mean, that's going to be great. I'm only going to be identified as Christ. We're going to be one family united perfectly behind one God. It's going to be a completely different scenario. All of life is going to, all the former old things will have completely passed away. Death will have passed away. And uh, the marriage relationship will be different. It will be fulfilled when we're in heaven. Because the church will be united with Christ. The bride will be united with the groom, and we will live happily ever after in our mansion. That's good news, right? Now, I love that Jesus was not content to just refute them, right? He wasn't just, he didn't just correct their foolish views about the future life. I love what he says in verses 31 through 32, right? When he says, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, you don't need to understand Hebrew or Greek to get this verse, but you do have to understand English, right? In other words, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not alive, the verb in, ver in verse 32 should be different, right? If they're not living, then Jesus should have said, I was the God, right? I mean, but when he says, I am the God, he's saying, look, they're still alive. They're eternal. They're in paradise. Right now, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. They're still alive. And guess what, guys? You're going to be alive forever, too. Jesus is, in, in a roundabout way, he, he's not only debunking them, but he's showing them their own need to recognize him as the Messiah and their own need to recognize that there will be a resurrection of the dead and they're going to be accountable. And look what the people did when they heard this. They were astonished at his teaching. Jesus brought it out in a way, because everyone up at this time, they were thinking, you know, past tense, Abraham, past tense, Isaac, past tense, Jacob, past tense, Moses. Jesus is saying, no, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. They're still there. And we know that when Jesus was resurrected, those Old Testament saints, many of these Old Testament saints, were also resurrected and ascended into heaven with him. So, I, I mean, that's, it's a dangerous thing. Whenever we try to speculate about the future life, I think that we've got to rest on the authority of God. I think we've got to rest on the authority of the Word of God and let God answer his, our questions about the future, Right? It encourages us, and it should enlighten us, right? Because there's a better day coming. The, the fact for, for Laura and I that, uh, you know, that I don't know if you're, if you're, I may let you come into my mansion if you're nice. You know what I mean? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's so hard for us to comprehend, though, isn't it? This life is going to be completely and totally different than the, than the life to come. We can't even fathom that, right? But you have to think about, we don't have the ability to even understand unconditional love, right? Our love, your love, no matter how much you say different, your love is very conditional, isn't it? If you're honest, so is mine, right? You, you tick me off, that's going to affect the way I love you, 
right? I'm just being honest. That's the way it is for all of us. Now, when I see you on Sunday, I still smile and say, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. But when I, when I, as soon as I leave your presence, I'm going to have that thought. Oh, thank God I've got to see them once a week, right? And if you turn, listen, if we're not changed, if something don't change, heaven ain't going to be good, right? So we have to be changed. We have to be. The old manner of life has to be completely done away with. And we're going to experience relationship on a completely untainted uh, and, and it's going to be a, it's going to be an experience in relationship without the presence of sin, no jealousy. I'm not going to look at Margaret's mansion and think, oh gosh, well she just has look at, she gets it all. Look at her, you know, angel number one, come over here and fix my shrubs, right? I want to look like Mark. There's not going to be any envy. Can you imagine? I'm not going to drive down Rolling Road and see the beautiful house with the pond and the pool and the walkout basement and go, oh, I wish I had that. Not going to exist. Relationship without any envy, without any jealousy, without any covetousness. We can't even fathom it. I mean, imagine, and a lot of this too goes back to the reclaiming of innocence, doesn't it? Because if we're honest, when we get to a certain level, when we start handling grown-up things, right, the first thing to go as you make the transition from childhood into adulthood your innocence, right? Innocence is going to be recaptured, reimagined. Imagine human relationships that have absolutely no chance of any type of abuse. They have absolutely no chance of any type of manipulation. Can you imagine? No chance of, 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 you know, of power struggle. No chance of he said, he said, she, she said. None of that. All that's gone. And we're like pure, innocent kids running and having a blast in the presence of our Heavenly Father. That's just the best way I can describe it. It's going to be a beautiful picture. It's going to be perfect. There will not be any sin. There will not be any death. There will not be the need to carry on legacies and carry on family, uh, family names. There won't be. So... That's a good, I think that's good news. Now that astonished the, the crowds with his answer. Jesus always astonished them. So let's see. He shut down the Pharisees. He shut down the Herodians. He shut down the Sadducees. So now the Pharisees are going to take another shot, right? They're going to take another shot. Let's read verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, now, where did Jesus go to go to uh, rabbi school? Did he attend any uh, any of those? That he didn't. So this is a guy. That, I think that that was probably one of the. Don't you think that was probably one of one of the most frustrating things for these guys? Because they're like, dude, we've been studying this our whole life since the time these guys were 13 years old. They had their head in a book. They were in the temple. They were learning from the greatest rabbis of the time. They were. I mean, I just think that it had to frustrate them so bad. That an unlearned man, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, is just making them look foolish time and time and time again. That had to get on their nerves, right? I'm just saying it would be, right? The, the experts, all right, so we got an expert. My dad always said an expert is, is it's a negative thing because it's a, an X. You have X, which is a has-been, and a spurt is a drop of water, so you have a has-been buckling under pressure when you talk to an expert. <laughs> 
And they asked this question again to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, how many commandments are there in the law? Does anybody know? Anybody want to take a stab at it? 613. Very good. And, and not all of them, not all of them little ones, but, you know, they had, there was uh, 613 commandments in, in the law. You had 248 that were positive and then 365 that were negative. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how good you are at keeping rules, following the rules. I give my kids one rule, right? And it's a 50-50 shot with one. Maybe 40-60, right, depending on the day. But that's a, lot of, that's a lot of commandments, right? And that doesn't include the extras, right, that we know the Pharisees threw on top of that so that they could try that they could distinguish themselves. So, I mean, that's a, a lot of commandments, right? We're good if we can just keep the ten, right? We would all agree the ten are the big ones, right? The ten are the big ones. And so what they there was this was a constant debate in the religious community at the time, and it still is today, right? Aren't we always kind of talking about what commandments in the book? Well, it's really important to hit this one. Well, this one, it's not as important. Well, I like this one, but I don't as much like that one, right? We still do that today. They debated it back and forth. 248 positive, 365 negative. No one could know how to fully obey these commandments, right? So the experts of the law, one of, one of these men that are referred to here in the passage, they divided these commandments into heavy and light. Heavy commandments and light commandments, right? So you, the idea was you major in the heavy commandments and not worry so much about the trivial ones, right? So for example, when, when God told Moses, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a major commandment, right? When God's laying out what to do with, the, you know, eating this, not eating that. When God's laying out how, how to, how to how, you know, when he's laying out the, the detailed commandments in Leviticus and in other parts of the Old Testament, right? It, it wasn't as important if there were some trivial commandments that you overlooked as long as you kept the heavy ones, right? Now, what's the problem with that? What do we know is wrong with that mentality? Anybody know? What's the thing with the law? If you break one, you break them all. James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, is guilty of the whole law. You can keep the Ten Commandments and then accidentally go to a barbecue and eat, you know, have a pork sandwich with some of your Gentile friends and you've broken the whole thing. Right? Which the, the, the dietary laws are actually pretty serious for the Jews. But the, the point of the matter is that is a pointless exercise, right? The purpose of the law. What was the overall purpose of the law? What was the purpose of it? Show that we needed a savior. To show. That's right. The purpose of the law was to show you couldn't keep it all. If if and uh, and this is what you have to remember. This is what they had totally missed. God is first and foremost, primarily holy. Holy, right? That's the the scariest thing about God is that He's good. Because we aren't, and we're so far from that. The purpose of the law is to show if you are going to approach a holy and perfect God, these are all the things that you're going to have to do to get there. 
And then, remember what the prophet said, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Even if you've got 350 of them, you're still so far that you can never come into his presence. Right? The purpose of the law is to show, was to show our sinfulness. Right? And that's what Paul said. If the law is used lawfully, it's good. Right? If the law shows you, if you come to the law and you see, wow, I, I, thou shalt not covet. Oh, man. I, I, I scrolled through Facebook today. I coveted a hundred times, right? They ate better than me. They're dressed better than me. They're going on vacation to better places than me, right? I mean, it's like, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Oh, man, I don't want to know how many times that happened, right? And you, if you look at the law and you realize, I really need a Savior. I really need some, I need a mediator because I've been weighed and I, I'm coming up on the short end of the stick. That's what makes the law is what makes the merciful act, God's righteousness, is highlighted and then it's enhanced by his mercy. Right? God, being rich in mercy, realizes you can't do it. Can't do it, son. No matter how hard you try. But that's okay. I'm going to make a way. I am going to myself step down and take on the form of a human being, I'll live the perfect life that you can't live. I'll pay the price. I will die. I will give my perfect life in exchange for yours. I will take the penalty. I'll die the death that you deserve. That's what he did on the cross. He died the death that you deserve and that I deserve. And then what I'll do after that is I'll raise him up. Right? The, the father said, he'll die, he'll pay the price, and then I'll raise him back up. And then I'll bring him back to be with me. And then after he's risen, and after he's ascended, we will send our very spirit down to bring the rest of them to life. And to make them whole. Man, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what these experts, they totally missed the whole thing. They totally missed the whole point. They were so blinded by their ability to keep some of the major rules, they totally missed the fact that you break one, you broke them all. I, I, would, I would love to have been able, I wish I had a time machine. You ever wish you had a time machine? I would love to go back in time, like to when John and Peter and James are preaching in the temple, and they're, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're telling these religious leaders, like, you broke one, you broke them all. I would love to have been there. That had to be must-see, you know, television. Right? That had to be it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus said to him, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, which is, uh, to the Jews, it's known as the Shema. It's recited daily. Orthodox Jews recited this daily. In fact, they would write it. Actually, literally, they had it written on the doorposts of their house. They would put it on little scrolls and wear it. Right? Because that's what the command says. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and, and you read through it. What does it say? Write it on the door, you know, bind it to your head, fasten it to your wrist, write it on the doorpost. So he quotes the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word, which means to hear. And it says, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. He quotes Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All of the prophets and the law depend on these two commandments. When you boil it all down, all 613 plus, it comes down to four words, right? Love God, love people. What would happen in our culture? What would happen in the major cities of America? What would happen in our little rural communities? What would happen in our homes? What would happen in our daily in our daily lives if we got back to these two commandments? Love God, right? Now we know love here, right? Agape love, that selfless, sacrificial. Love. It means that I do what I do for your sake, not my own. Love God, right? With all. With all. Now, you know what the, I say this all the time, but the Greek word for all is all. It means all. <laughs> all of your heart. What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay. All your heart. I love that. Willing to give up those things for the sake of God, right? Now, he says heart. Why, why, did, why, did, why is he talking about heart? He's not literally meaning your, your blood pumping vessel, vessel, right? The heart was the seat of the emotions. Love the Lord your God with all your emotions, right? What are, what are some of our primary emotions? Just throw them out there. Huh? Love, fear, anger, joy. Right? Excitement, happiness, nervousness, sadness, all my emotions. Love God, right? In my anger, do not sin. In my excitement, don't speak out of turn. In my joy, right? In my joy, don't lose sight of the reason for my joy, right? So love God with all of our emotions. And so that's the thing. That's the way to be a mature, stable person. Is to love God with all your emotions, right? In my sadness, in my grief, in my sorrow, right? I'm going to love God. I'm going to let. That's going to be. That's going to be the defining point. That's going to be the center of all of it. All of it's going to go back to Him. I'm going to take it all back to Him, and I'm going to let Him regulate it and guide it and change it if necessary, right? You can't ignore your emotions, right? You can't, you can't live like you're not, you can't live like you're not upset. I'm not saying, you know, don't ignore them, but when you experience them, you can't let them dictate your actions. Right? That's maturity, isn't it? Right? What do children do, Micah, when mommy and daddy say no? What do they do? What do you do? Okay, they do it anyway. Yeah, that's that's prices. He said they do it anyway. Yeah? Yeah, that's right, because because they're, they're they they've advanced in age, but they have not advanced in character. Yeah, well, even taking that up from my own experience, it's like if you're preaching on Sunday, yeah. and, you know, on Facebook and stuff. I can I can sit and look at something, and all heck will go through me, and uh, I want to say something so bad. Yeah. And I I walk away from it for a while, but then I end up coming back to it, and yeah. then I end up making a comment. So. I was so convicted Sunday. That's a good I reason really, not to be. Yeah, I really have to think about that. Yeah. And, and like you said, focus on where I should be focusing on. Yeah. And I know I'm still going to mess up and make comments. Right, right. But I know better. And But as an adult, it's like a child. We, we do that. We, mm. It comes back to 
Well, I love that. I mean, that's the greatest commandment, to, to, to su surrender that and submit that to him. And, I mean, to love God doesn't mean to have just good feelings or emotions about him. Right? That's not true love. True love is it involves the will as well as the heart, right? It involves the will. I, it's a determination. Wherever there is true love, there is service and obedience, right? If I, truly, if I truly love you, even if I'm angry with you, I'm still going to do what's best for you, right? I'm still. You could say something that makes me angry. That doesn't mean I'm going to cock back and knock you out, right? <laughs> that would not be a mature emotional response, right? What I was trying to get at, Micah, before, <laughs> even though you answered honestly, which is right, do it anyway. But, you know, children throw tantrums, don't they? They don't get what they want. <laughs> And they cry, and they cry, and they cry. And when your child does that, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but when your child does that, you don't break down and give them what they want. You hold fast and say, no. Answer still no. Otherwise, you create a monster. Right? But anyway, they do that. They throw, but, but if I'm a mature Christian, and I, and I have it, I really want to pursue this. I really want to pursue this. I really want to, I really want to comment on that. I really want to chime in on that. But I, but I feel the Holy Spirit. I know that it would not honor God. I say, you know what? Lord, I'm going to love you with all my heart. I really want to weigh in and do about three paragraphs of just, you know, just giving it back to you. But I'm going to love God with all my heart. Love him with all your soul. Your soul includes your heart and your mind. The only thing that's lacking here is, uh, is, is your will, right? So with all my soul, with my will, and the Greek word there for soul is psyche, so with my thought process. My thought process, not just with the, the thoughts that I continue to dwell on, but with the creation and the formulation and the follow through of those thoughts. So it's with the whole soul, with all my emotions, with all my will, and with all of my thoughts. Every sin you've ever committed, where did it begin? It began right here. It started off as a thought. And that's something you got to recognize, too. Not every thought you have is an original thought. This is what people don't understand today. They have that thought that, that kind of leads them down a sinful or a harmful pattern, and they think, well, I'm thinking this, so this just may, must be normal. No, listen, you got an enemy that's sending negative, he's sending lies at your brain all day long. You've got a, you've got a media machine that's sending lies at your brain all day long. They don't care about you as an individual. They see you as a consumer. They see you as a means to an end. And so they, 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 they promote what they want to promote, and they make you think you've got to have this in order to be complete. It happens all day long. We're conditioned from the moment we're born to be consumed. And so you have to understand that not every thought you have is an original thought. Your brain is like that computer. It receives transmissions from all over. And it gets jumbled up in there, but every now and then, you know, you can see something uh, 10 years ago. And it can come in and it can get lodged and stored down in the subconscious. And 10 years later, it can come back out and you're like, where'd that come from, right? Well, it went in, it got jumbled around, you got a lot of empty <laughs> space in there, it got funneled away back in, and then it comes out. Not every thought you have is an original thought. That's why, why does, that's why the Bible says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Of your mind. Because if you're not careful, all of that garbage
that you get from the world that's under the influence of Satan and all of the direct assaults on your brain, if you do not purposefully and willfully check it by the word of God, what's going to happen? You're just going to get swept right along with the tide. And you see it all day long. You see it happening all day long. Where? How do people get to this point? I mean, how do the how do Supreme Court justices get to the point where they say, okay, you know what? Let's redefine. Let's redefine biological sex. Let's redefine it. Let's go ahead and include uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Let's include that now. Since when? Since when? Why? Because that's the pattern of the world. That's the flow of the world. That's the lie of the enemy that has been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated enough. To where now it's like, well, why not? It seems like this. It seems like this is what everybody's thinking anyway. No, it ain't. It ain't what I'm thinking, right? I'm still back with what God said in Genesis and what Jesus repeated in Matthew and Mark. God made them male and female, right? That's why when we preached on that, First Corinthians 11, what makes a man a man is his relationship with God. What makes a woman a woman is her relationship with God. She accepts her creation. It's not elastic. It's not fluid. It doesn't change. God wasn't confused. Right? So if I love the Lord my God with all my mind, then when I see that crap and I see that garbage coming out of the mouth of whoever, right? Something in me goes, eh, that don't line up with the word. So instead of accepting that as the new normal, and instead of accepting that as the new reality, and you can apply whatever you want to apply to. I'm just applying it to that because that's that's in the headline. That's what we're dealing with now. This this verse has a million applications, doesn't it? It has a million different applications. What we need to do tonight is we need to say, okay, Lord, how can I love you with all my heart? How can I love you with all my soul? How can I love you with all my mind? How, how am I how am I shorting you? Are you giving God all? Well, I think all of us in the room would say, no, I probably didn't today. I know I did. So what do we do then, right? We come back to him and we say, Lord, show me a way that I can honor you a little bit better than that. How can I honor you? Show me this specific way. And then if I have a, if I have a specific area, that I'm really struggling in, well, then you know what I do? I go back, I, I find the truth that applies to that, and I read it, and I apply it, and I put it into in the action. As a Christian, you should continuously have to say, I continuously have to say, God, I'm reading it in your word. It's not what suits me. This is not my nat natural inclination. This is not what really makes me feel good at this moment. But I trust that you're good, and you are God, and your word says this. So, Lord, I'm going to let your word override my desire. You know what that's called? That's called loving God. That's what that is. That's what that is. All this talk about God is love. He is. And he loves us. Maybe we need to put the emphasis back on how we're loving him. Because it seems to me that what we're trying to do today is we're trying to let one truth override our responsibility to respond to that same truth. If God loves me enough to die for me, then I should love him enough to live for him. 
And that is how we should probably close the meeting. If God loves me enough to die for me, I should love him enough to live for him. That proves I really believe that he is who he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Because there is going to be a resurrection, isn't there? And there's going to be a day when you and when I and when everyone watching on that feed has got to stand before that holy God. And I don't know about you. I don't know about anybody else. My only chance, listen, they vote without Jesus Christ don't have a snowball's chance in hell. That's just the way it is. I'm going to stand before a holy God. The only chance I've got is I'm going to say, Lord, I did my best to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And I also tried to love my neighbor as myself. So if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to allow myself to become self-righteous to the point where I take my belief and I get to a point where I believe that my belief or that the truth is more important than me displaying the grace of God. Right? It goes back to that old, it's an old, old adage. I told Micah this the other day. Micah's asking me, Dad, how do we, you know, God's word is true, and there's people that aren't living according to the Bible, but we're called to love them. How do we do it? What do we do? It goes back to that old, old saying, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. I can honor and respect the individual, but I do not have to 100% sign off on everything that they do. It's impossible for anybody to do that in any scenario, Right? So I'm going to love God. I'm going to live for him. And when I'm interacting with other people, I'm going to appeal. I love what Paul said. He said, the love of God compels us. We make our appeal to men. I'm going to say, man, listen, I, I, I'm not going to judge you. I don't know how you got to where you got. I don't know what framed the way you believe, but I know there's a better way. man. I know there's a better way. I know there's a better way. I love you. And I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to respect you. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm also going to make sure you know that I, I, that I believe there's a better way. And it's not a better way because it's my way. It's a better way because it's God's way. The way is the best way. Has, it, it, it don't have nothing to do with Dave Boat believing it. It has everything to do with Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's a better way because it's God's way, not mine. It has nothing to do with my religion. It has everything to do with that relationship that dictates and governs my every thought, my every action, and my every outlook on life. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, I know that there are so many ways and areas where I, I haven't loved you with all of my heart today, with all my mind, with all my soul. God, I just, I just pray that you'll forgive me. I pray you'll show me specifically what inclinations, what attitudes, what words, what outbursts, what impulses. Lord, whatever it is that was in my life that wasn't in line with your very best, Lord, I pray that you will bring it to my attention, and I pray you give me the courage to surrender to your leading. I just pray all over the world tonight that we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, that we will give every other human being, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of 
the way they label themselves, I pray that we will try to show them your love. Oh, we need to be full of grace and truth, just like you were. We need to be full of conviction. We also need to be full of compassion. We need to be full of the truth. We also need to be full of your love. Lord, you do that perfectly without any division. Lead us and guide us. Because I don't want to come down on people from my pedestal. I want to reach out to people from level ground, demonstrating your love and realizing that I'm just another beggar who found the bread, and I want to take you to it. Let that be our outlook and our mentality. And Lord, we pray for our national leaders. I pray for the Supreme Court of the United States. I know they have a hard job. I pray, Lord, that you'll convict them. I pray that you'll speak to them. I pray, oh God, that you will lead them and guide them. And Lord, I just pray that in the coming years, Lord, as the, as, the, as the ruling they made continues to play itself out, I just pray you protect your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless.